The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only, the... Do I smell Sasquatches in the air? Is it mating season? Tammy, the underdog, Underwood, say, you beast. You know what? <laughs> yes. You deserve to be smacked. Yeah, I just wish that you used better mic dynamics. I'm talking right into my microphone. <laughs> but anyways. All right, so we got... We had a total of four calls from Keith today. We do. And this is uh, this episode here is going to be call one and two. So give call a recap one and two. what we talked about for um, call one and two. Well, basically, well, the first part of call one, we just basically talked about because um, Friday the 13th yesterday marked a significant day in Keith's history. Oh, yeah, yeah, because yeah. Because it kind of like set the ball rolling for the Angela Sabrese murder. Right, right, right. And so we kind of went over that and, you know, and it's like, I mean, and we've often talked about it, too. It's like you come to certain junctions in your life where you think, well, if I would have just done this instead of this, and he realized that something happened to him on that day that kind of set the ball in motion for him to take this other path. You know what I mean? Right, right, And right. that happened in, on January 13th, 1995. So we went over that. And then we also... Um, no, I think that was 93. No, he's, that was in January 13, 1995, he said. I thought he was convicted in 95. He was convicted in October. We go through that later in call four. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, this was right before he killed Angela Sabrees and Winningham. Julie oh, Winningham. yeah, yeah, okay. I'm, yeah. I'm back on track. Yeah, so, um, you know, so we went over that, and then we talked about basically just ran a timeline of the incidents that took place after he murdered um, Tanya Bennett, because as we talked about in the past and we kind of like keep reiterating is Keith is not your stereotypical, quote, serial killer. No, no, he's he, a little different. Yeah, yeah, he didn't always have this like desire to hurt things and you know what I mean? Or the triad, so to speak. And so right. he um, I and you and I have talked about this before that I mean, we could probably go round and round about why he killed Tanya Bennett. And I think that it, a lot of things were out of control in his life and he snapped. Well, that, that's kind of my thought, too. Yeah. I mean, he's jobless. Yeah. You know, he's jobless. His girlfriend left him. Right. You know, Saying you got to tell yeah. out of the house. And yeah. It's just there's a bunch of shit going on. So exactly. there's a lot of um, external stressors. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, we went through all that. And then in call number two, he talked about how he. You know, because he murdered uh, Tony Bennett in 91. And then um, he didn't murder anybody else until um, the following year, uh, April. Like almost a year, a little over a year later is when he started, he killed three more people that whole year. Right. Right. And then we talked about that timeline about those three, you know, and then how in 93 he had four more victims and then he had Sabrese and um, Winningham in 94 and 95. Or 95, excuse me. Um, you know, so we kind of just went through a timeline of everything. And um, it's very interesting that 
you know, because he knows exact dates and days of the week and all that other stuff. But when you look at his crimes, um, and we get more into that in three and four, too, which I'll talk about here in a minute. But um, when you get into his crimes, it's like he was kind of, I think, spiraling and knew he was spiraling at oh, the end. Totes. You know, so, yeah. So that that's those two calls, and then we can go over the other two next time. Awesome. All right, let's get into the calls. Hey, good morning, Keith. Hey, good morning. Damn technology. <laughs> Trying to get it to connect. I'm sitting there going, God dang, it's like an act of God. What's wrong with this thing? I'm almost, almost, almost hung up on you. I was thinking, ah, this ain't going to happen, not for another 10 more minutes. But. Scott, Scott is techni- technologically challenged sometimes. No, the, the computer system just doesn't like so, me this week. So you know what happened yesterday, right? No, what happened yesterday? Well, it was Friday the 13th. It oh, was. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what happened on Friday the 13th of 1995? That's what you should ask. On January 13th, 1995? Yeah, January 13th, 1995. What happened to me? You weren't arrested in January, were you? No, but I was I was on the side of the road on Interstate 76 going to Denver, Colorado, and I just passed Sterling, Colorado, and my truck caught fire and burned to the ground. Oh, my Holy goodness. Shit. 8 o'clock in the morning. Wow. Well, you know, the the real, you know, no, Scott will understand this. Okay. Now, I was I, I was in Chicago on the day before, and I was leaving there, and I drove straight through overnight, and I was trying to make it to Denver for my first drop, and then my second drop in San Francisco. Had a load of steel on, flatbed. And systems trucking, they had these automatic slack adjusters. I don't know if you're aware of those back then in the oh, 90s, yeah. but uh, the automatic slack adjusters were like a ratchet type of uh, uh, implementation that uh, the mechanics thought that we'd eliminate people from adjusting their own brakes, so we decided to make it mechanized, and then sometimes they don't always work properly. Wow. And uh, somewhere around uh, Ogallala, uh, Nebraska, uh, a car came on the freeway, and Tom almost stopped in front of me and I had to slam my foot on the brakes. But after I started driving forward, uh, I felt a little hesitant in the truck. I didn't know what exactly what it was. It was a heavy load, and of course, we didn't have a lot of power in the truck. And I made it about 40 miles down the road, and then uh, all of a sudden, the, uh, uh, the left rear outside tire blew all the hell. And uh, I pulled over the side of the road, what the hell's going on, and it caught fire. I got underneath there, and I saw that the drum was about orange hot. Wow. I knew this thing was going to burn down, so I separated the trailer from the tractor, and I moved about 100 feet ahead and watched the the smoke billow out and and, uh, waited for the uh, fire department from Sterling, Colorado, to come and put it out. The only way you're going to put that kind of a fire out is water. Oh, yeah. Fire extinguisher ain't going to do it. i got to cool everything down. But but before they put it all out, I lost... uh, all eight tires in the back and all the hoses and stuff like that. So it was a screwed up mess. Ooh, but the reason why I bring, no, I bring this up because that was a pretense to why and how I met Angel Sabreeze in Spokane, oh. Washington. Now we'll get into this later. We'll right. get into this later uh, as we discuss that case. But um, there's a whole lot of, I, I always want, I write this out about the Angel Sabreeze case. There's, uh, I tried to talk about how 
a right turn, left turn type thing in your life all makes a difference. Right. And it, it's quite a long process, but yeah, I was, um, it was a precursor to uh, how I met her. Um, mm-hmm. Now, Scott would also understand that what, what brought me up on this, these automatic slack adjusters, I remember back in 1983 when I worked for uh, Get K Construction out of Lethbridge, Alberta, I remember getting, you know, they drove, they had dump trucks and they had a low boy and, and a couple excavators and I hired on as an excavator operator. Well, the first job I went on, the boss is driving the low boy and I'm sitting in the passenger seat and we're coming up to a stop sign and he reaches over and he pulls the maxi brake out. You know why he pulls the maxi brake out, Scott? I have no idea. It's kind of dangerous, man. Because that's the only way the truck will stop. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my you know goodness. why it only stopped like that? Because okay. he didn't know how to fuck. He didn't know how to adjust brakes. Yeah, he's the owner say, of the company. He's the owner. So I look over him and I said, "What the hell are you doing?" He said, "That's the only way the truck will stop." Oh and I my said, goodness! Well, do you uh, do you know how to adjust brakes? And he looked at me and he says, "You can adjust brakes." <laughs> right? Yeah, it's not rocket science. Out, he didn't have a nine sixteenth <laughs> wrench on him. Wow. So I grabbed my little six-inch crescent wrench, and I, you know, I went underneath his trailer and truck and adjusted all the brakes. And then when we went to the next stop sign, he was reaching over to pull the maxi brake out again because they have spring brakes. They understand the concept of spring brakes. Yeah. Which is on the, it's on the back side of your regular brake so that when you pull the maxi out, the spring brake will actually engage the braking system. Anyway, he was reaching over to check to, you know, pull out the maxi. He said, whoa, don't do that. Touch your brakes. Use your brakes, man. They're they're fully adjusted now. Wow, dude. Yeah, I just wanted to bring this up about you know Friday the thirteenth on eight o'clock in the morning in nineteen ninety five. I was in Sterling, you know, when I caught fire. Of all things, on Friday the thirteenth, right? (laughs) Gee, man, Christmas. No doubt. (laughs) That is crazy. But hey, but you did say that you unhooked the load, and did you save the load? Oh yeah, well, okay. the load. Well, they they brought another they brought another truck out. Right. They hooked onto the trailer, and I hopped in the truck with them. Okay. And I they dropped me off in Vegas. I hopped another truck. I went into Fontana, California, and then from Fontana, California, they gave me a, a lo- another truck and a trailer. And I went to California Steel, picked up a couple of coils, and hauled them to Spokane. Oh, Later wow. that night, after I got out of Spokane, that's when I met Angel Sabrina. Anyway, oh wow! So it's it's all kind of like inter- intertwined in my life here. But where were we on our uh, our conversation? Well, we were uh, we were talking, and I forgot my paperwork at the house. Um, we were kind of talking about how um, the whole situation when Laverne got arrested and everything, and we were getting into that about how you didn't realize that they had arrested somebody until Laverne and them were going to trial. Well, I didn't even know they went to trial. Oh, okay. See, see, and see, I, I, the Don Slagle case, when I, I mentioned the Don Slagle case. Right. Yeah, that happened in April of, of, of 1990, you know, a couple months after I, I, I murdered uh, Tanya. Right. Well, that was, that was ongoing. See, their lives, Laverne and John's lives were involved there in, in going, to, going to jail and then also going to trial. Right. Now, I didn't keep. I I wasn't in town. I wouldn't. I didn't watch what was going on. Right. I I w- I had gotten away with murder. 
Mm-hmm. I'd gotten away from murder. I was I was leaving the area, right? Right. I wanted to leave the area, so I went to Spokane and I got a truck driving job with Jaffco Trucking, and I was driving across the country with my girlfriend Roberta as my co-driver. Right. Yeah, because so you and Roberta had gotten to... back together after you murdered Tanya, right? Because you were with her before. Yeah, she she right. came home. She came home. Right. Uh, because her kids, her kids were handed back over from her ex-husband. Okay, gotcha. So now we had a family type of thing going on. And uh, so I was back driving truck. Okay. And uh, w- Roberta jumped on it, and, of course, she got, she hired her nanny to look after the kids. Right. And we were heading we were heading back and forth across the United States, and we had no idea what was going on in Laverne and John's life other than the fact I believe they had already been arrested, convicted, and sent to prison. I just believe that because that's what happens on TV. Right. You know, I was oblivious to the actual legal system what really went on. Right. Now, I got arrested in 1991, and in January 1991, I was pulled out of the truck in Rock Island, Illinois, for the felony of John Slagle. Right. And they pulled me off, and, and I waived extradition, which, in the legal system, when you, when, you, when you don't fight the legal system, you gain credibility. Right. So... Because I didn't fight extradition, their case became weaker. Right. That's why. That's why California refused to come and get me. Because if I had had I fought extradition, they would have come and got me eventually. Right. And it would have made their case stronger, and then I would have been probably convicted of, 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 of you know, assaulting Don Slagle. Right. They would. They would have. They would have come found me guilty. But because I didn't fight it. Their case became weaker, and they dropped the felony to a misdemeanor and cut me loose. Right. But I made it back to Spokane. I lost my job. Okay. Mm-hmm. Roberta couldn't drive the truck by herself. She was, she was a 300-mile-a-day driver, and that's all. She needed to drive 500 miles a day to make a living. They, they wouldn't let her on the truck with it. Right. So we both lost our work until I was able to clear up the misdemeanor with Don Slagle. Right. Well, I came back now. What I didn't know is when I when I got released that following Monday, I got on a Greyhound bus and I was making it back there. And when I got to Livingston, Montana, I was in the restroom and I wrote the note on the wall: "I killed Tanya Bennett on January twenty first, nineteen ninety. Two people got to, took the blame, and, and so I can kill again." Blah blah blah. Right. Right. That wall was taken to the courthouse while Laverne was on trial, but I didn't know she was on trial. Okay. I had no idea. I mean, this is just a just a completely you know they the, you know the prosecutor said hey that must have been one of Laverne's family members that wrote the note on the wall right I remember that I coming up too I yeah. wasn't privy to that I wasn't privy to that at all I was just doing I was just moving on with my life right dealing with what I had to deal with and I'd gotten away with murder right now they were by by March of, of 1991 they were convicted and sent to prison right and I didn't, you know, I had no idea. I just knew they were in prison. I had no idea when they got there or whatever. So this was all new. They only found out about this after I was arrested. Later on in 1995 is when I found out how this all developed. Uh, when later the L.A. Times story came out and actually told me how it did. Okay. So like everybody else, I was just oblivious to it. I didn't know how, how they were put in prison and stuff. I had to had to learn from the prosecutor telling me how he got him in prison. Wow. This whole story came about in, in the L.A. Times story in 1996. 
that's he's the one that told on himself. He told us how this case developed. If right. he hadn't told us how this case developed, we would have sat there with a thumb of brass. Wow. Wondering what the hell really happened because we wouldn't know. Right. I'm sure I'm sure that he's sitting there in his, in his retirement going like, man, I really screwed up by telling the whole world how it all went down. Right. Because once once Jesperson got a hold of this, mm-hmm. I went ahead and started injecting where I was in my life when this was going on and so that people could make sense of what was going on. Right. Now, so I do that, have... I do have a quick question, though, because I want to clarify some things is, I mean, we talked about how um, you murdered Tanya kind of like spur of the moment. It's not like you had thought about it, premeditated it, you know, singled her out or anything. I didn't have a grave already dug, right? Right. Exactly. You didn't have like this trigger or whatever that prompted you to kill her. However, my question is, is after that, before you killed the other women, did you have a desire to kill them, or it was just, you know, I don't want any hassle anymore? Well, I think we will we'll get around to that. This, okay. this is the, you know, my life continues on, right? Right, exactly. So I'm, I, I got away with murder. I walked away from it. I'm thinking, okay, great, I, I, got, I got away from this. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I ran into Don Flagle, and of course I had to do had to deal with the he said she said thing. Right, right, right. For two years, for two whole years, I had to deal with this. And when I uh, in, in April of '92, I went to I, I took a bus down to Wairika, California, to settle the Don Flagle case. Uh huh. In which I when I when I got in, they handed me a lawyer, and the lawyer said, "Go have lunch." I came back an hour later, and and the whole case was dismissed. Wow. Because Don Slagle didn't want to testify or some stupid thing along the way. They, she said something along the way that where uh, nothing really happened. I just want to make this behind us. Let's move on kind of a thing. Right. And so she didn't want to testify, so the case went away. Okay. And the, misdemeanor, the, the felony went to a misdemeanor, and the misdemeanor went to a, a, a dismissal, and it was in the end of story. Right. I got back. I went back to trucking in, 19, in April of 1992. Mm-hmm. And I started going up and down the highway, and that's what I did. I went, but in 1992, I killed three more people, three more women, right? Wow, yeah. And this is where we want to get into, is this, how did I get to this point? Yeah. Well, my, my, while I'm driving, um, I was driving by myself. I didn't have anybody with me, and I could pretty much set my own pace on how to get to where I was going, and, uh. I found myself in about August of 1992. I found myself at the brake check area, off of, off of uh, Interstate 15 above San Bernardino, south of Victorville. Okay. There's a big wide spot there where people pull over and they, they check their brakes. Right. And they because the scale house is open down the down the road there, and this is like uh, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. So most of the truck, everyone was. I was the only truck parked in the parking area. I was by myself, I was underneath my truck, and I was adjusting my brakes because I know the scale house is open. And while I was underneath her, this woman came up, I heard a voice, hey, mister, can I get a ride? I'm like, what? You know, so uh, eventually I, I agreed to give her a ride because it was an Albertson's truck behind me. Um, now, Scott would understand this, is that he's not allowed to carry uh, unauthorized people in his truck. Right. Yep. Especially going across the scale, and, and because if he did that, then his boss could fire him. Hell, the damn uh, Department of Transportation could fire him. Yeah, they, they could write you a big-ass ticket, too. Give you a big ticket, you know, for having an unauthorized person in your truck. Well, 
Albertson's driver didn't have a sleeper, and he was, had given her a ride from, I think, Vegas or somewhere up north. And uh, she needed a ride, and she wanted to go to Los Angeles. Well, I wasn't going to Los Angeles. I was going to Phoenix, Arizona, which when you come down off of I-15, you come down past the scale house, you have a split there. One goes to Fontana, California. The other one heads on out there towards uh, Banning, you know, over there by Cabazon, over there to uh, then uh, hits, uh, hits I-10 there, and then you head, head east. Right, like down by Palm Fort Springs Dwight. and all that. Yeah, you go up to Indio and in that area, head towards Indio, Coachella, where they have yep. the big band things over in Coachella. You know where that is? Oh yeah, I used to live in Palm Springs. Yeah, that's off of that's off of Dillon Road in Coachella. Anyway, mm-hmm. so yeah, um, I I didn't want to go to L.A. I told her I wasn't going to L.A. She said I need to go to L.A. But she's traveling light. She has no purse. She has no ID on her. Has nothing. So. It's it's a troubling situation because when they travel light like this, they're like a like a road road dog, I guess you'd call them. They go out there and they run up and down the highway and just try to get what they can while they can. And if they have to run for it, they can run when they don't have to. They're not carrying anything like luggage. Right. So so she gets in the truck and I told her I'd get her down past the scale house. But I'm going to I'm going east. I'm not going west. So I'm not going to take her to Fontana. But when we get down there at the scales, and she decides, you know, she wants to uh, push the issue that take just take me to Fontana so I can get off there and I don't have to go all the way out to uh, Cabazon. And, and I said, no, I'm not doing this. But uh, she decided to go with me to Cabazon. But anyway, I ended up killing her later. Okay. And then that was. And the only reason I did, I think I had too much time to kill, pardon the pun, right? <laughs> right. I had, I had a lot of time on my hands to play. Okay. See, I, was, I wasn't in a hurry to go somewhere. I had time to just kind of like coast along. It was like one of those nonchalant, not in a really hurry day. Right. So I had time to play. So in other words... And she said she was a, a hooker at some point. So the the prospect of having getting laid was on one of the other sides. So I just ran with it. And then, of course, things didn't turn out the way they, I wanted to. And, yes, I ended up killing her. But I didn't want to deal with the he said, she said again. Okay. And so I didn't want to deal with her mouth and the way she was talking. I said, no, I'll, we'll get into this later on this one. Right. Just like the next one. Um the, now, the second one, I mean, yeah. No, so it's this victim here, the one in August 92, is she the one that still not hasn't been found that they thought was somebody else? No, she, she oh. just, her, okay. her body was found north of Blythe, California, about, okay. you know, six miles north of Blythe. Um, everything was, I actually am doing a 25 to life running concurrent with Oregon right, at this time. I picked up in 2010 out of Riverside County, okay. California. I, and that's I'm doing this that case. 25 to life run the concurrent. Okay. And then the, the other one, uh, within a few weeks later, I was heading down 99. I was going to Fresno, California in the morning. Had a load of um, Washington beef to deliver. And I pulled in the rest area, and I, I got into a, an issue with a gal there. and ended up killing her. But I thought I killed her. Maybe I didn't. Because I put her body in behind the Blueberry Hill Cafe in Livingston, California, in the middle of the dirt parking lot. Well, little, little did I know that within a couple of weeks of when this happened, 
another woman had died named Cynthia Lynn Rose, and her body was a drug overdose, and her body was found within 50 feet of where I put mine. Wow. And so they never found the one I put there, so I think maybe she I didn't kill her and she got up and walked away. Wow. And, and Cynthia Lynn Rose has always been the one, they said, well, I must have done that one because they couldn't find the, my, the one I put there. So they, they just point to Cynthia Lynn Rose as being mine, even though she died of a drug overdose. Wow. Yeah, this is this is an ongoing. This, this even right now it's ongoing. Trying to figure, they're, they're they're looking at a dog team to go to the old Blueberry Hill Cafe to try to sniff out where the body was where I put it and hopefully right. discover where it is. Or wow. if it's not there, they have to deal with you know it, it, it's a long. The, the, the police don't aren't interested in in solving that case. I have a life sentence in writing if we are able to find the body. Okay, but they've never they've never really wanted to settle it because they've never found a body and and they know that since the Rose had died of a drug overdose and they've they've labeled it as my murder, but it's not a murder; it's a drug overdose. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's just it's just the fact that the body was found within fifty feet of where I said I put one. Oh, okay. Which is, you know, it's, it's, it's they think it's a dumping ground for the Keith Jespers and the Happy Face Killer, if not. <laughs> well, you know. You know. you know, they have to, yeah. Yeah. Well, my, my third one that year happened on November 8th, and that was the one I killed in in uh, uh, Wilsonville at exit 286. Matter of fact, the same area where Laverne said that she met John with, with Tanya, the same truck stop. But okay. that one there, I left, the, I left that body down there uh, at, behind the G.I. Joe store in Salem, Oregon. Uh, with, which is actually only about a mile away from this prison, by the way. Right, I knew and, that. <laughs> and I, I put, I put the body there, and uh, I, I got thirty-seven and a half years. I'm doing right now on that one in Oregon, wow. behind behind the back of the of the Bennett case. Right. So I have sixty-seven and a half years to do in prison in Oregon. I'll be 108 years old when I go to Washington State for 34 more years. Ah, you'll make it. Ah. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure I will. Yeah. yeah. Then I go to know. Wyoming. Then, yeah, I have a life without in California on the uh, the Patricia Skippel case. That was the one in 1993, where they identified her um, in uh, April of 90 of 2022. They were through this uh, DNA Ancestry.com type thing. They discovered a family member and they backtracked it and found that my victim was named Patricia Skippel. Okay. See, and I and remember I, reading something about that, you know. Yes, and I picked up, I picked up uh, back then, I, that's, that's in Santa Clara County where right. the body was found, and so I picked up a life without, out of California to run con, uh, consecutive to my Washington, Wyoming, and Oregon time. Oh, wow. So are all your sentences consecutive, or are some running concurrent? I, all except for that one in California, Riverside County, the, the the that Riverside's concurrent. concurrent. Okay. He's running concurrent. All the rest are running wild. So I'm looking at the rest of everybody else's lives before I, I get out. So. Well, you know, I've always asked Scott how that works. You know, when people get like three life sentences without the possibility and they die, do they have to come back and go to prison again? <laughs> well, you know, I had this I had this argument with the... Uh, um, my the how the uh, the financial part of the Oregon prison system. Right. They have right now. They have this uh, 
they, you have to put in a, uh, you have to have a fund for a transition account. Okay. And I have to put in up to $500 in the transition account, so in case when I parole, I have $500 to take with me when I leave prison. Oh, but well, I made my argument with him and says, well, I'm not going to leave Oregon until I'm dead. Right. So how can I spend my $500? And they said, well, because I don't have life without or on death row, I still have to put money into this account. Wow. That I'll never get to use. That I'll never get to use. Now, right now it's 500 bucks, but I can bet within a couple of years they're going to think that's not enough and they'll raise it to 1000 and I'll end up putting 1000 in there that I'll never get to use. Wow. It'll be that I can draw interest on it, but I can't use it because, you know, it's, I, the only way I get to use it is if I leave prison. Right, right. Yeah. And so, I argue the fact that I'm not leaving prison. I'm, I'm going to die here. Right. But they don't care. They don't care. It's, it's, it's the way, that, it's the, way the, the law is written. Right. Uh, the Oregon rule is written that I have to have $500 on this account if I have a life sentence, even though the life sentence I'll, I'll never receive, I'll never get to the end of it. Right. Anyway. Wow. See, it's I just, didn't know that about... It's just a, yeah. yeah. That is crazy, yo. It is nuts. It is so, nuts. So then what will they do with that money once you pass away? Will it go to... Uh, well, it'll go to the inmate trust fund. Oh, I see. It'll go to... Okay. Well, either that or it'll go to a, some cops that'll probably get a new bass boat. Right. <laughs> I was going to say, does it go like into restitution fund? Someone, you'll get something, they'll, they'll go to... It'll, it'll go somewhere... But it won't go to me. It won't. Now right. my family could probably my family could contest it and get the money from them. Right. Chances are, by the time they found out I was dead, that uh, they True. wouldn't even think about the money being here, and my whole account and everything would probably be liquidated and be sent somewhere else. Right. Right. No, I was just I wondering if they took that money and transferred yeah. it into a restitution fund after that. So. Well, yeah, it wouldn't go to the restitution. It'd go to just the inmate. Welfare fund. Gotcha. That helps the destitute inmates. Yeah. That one. Yes, that's right. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, um, that that's, that also begs another question is, you know, because, I mean, you aren't a spring chicken anymore. So how's your health otherwise? No. Are, are, are you healthy well, otherwise? 60, well, I'm 67 years old. I'm right. 68 in April. Right. I have atrial fibrillation. Which oh, is okay. I have a regular heartbeat, which I just I can't run, I can't do anything. Right. I have low energy, and uh, I'm overweight. I'm a you know I'm a big guy, but right. I shouldn't be as big as I am. But I am. This is how prison food is. Right. No lack of exercise and everything. I'm you know I'm running around 340 pounds. So yeah, I've, you know I I don't have diabetes yet. Okay. I'll probably end up getting and I have kind of a heart disease problem with this atrial fibrillation. Right. And all I'm doing is taking a, a baby aspirin regimen every other day. And, and I, I told uh, all the other, you know, the, the blood thinners and that. I told the doctor, I said, no, I'm not going to deal with this. I wrote into a, I have a DNR with the do not resuscitate right. order on me. So in case I fall out, I'm not going to be brought back and kept alive just to collect the money for me. Right, right. No, no I, yeah, I, my mom... I, I was raised in the healthcare industry, so I know what all those medical terms are. Um, so, okay, but yeah, because it was like, because somebody asked, one of my friends asked me the other day, they said, well, is he still really healthy? I said, well, I don't know. Let me ask him. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, so other than that, I mean, and then we, 
the the weight thing, I mean, I understand because you're such a tall man, you know. Yeah, and, I, I carry it well. Don't yeah. get me wrong, I carry it well. Just yeah. that my heart won't allow me to carry it fast. Right. I used to run a lot. So okay. back when I was 28, 30 years old, I, I weighed like 205 pounds. I'm six foot six. I was right. running 10 miles a day. Wow. And I was running a quick or I was riding. I'd ride my bike back and forth to work 40 miles, right? Right. I remember so you talking about no that. it wasn't no big deal. Right. You know, 20 miles here, 20 miles there. And I didn't think nothing of it. Wouldn't think nothing about riding my bicycle 150 miles on a weekend. Wow. It's just. I'd take off instead of take the car. I'd just take my bicycle and ride and just cruise wow. around town. That's, and and uh, that was my, you know, I, I had fun. It was just one of those things. Well, yeah. So, yeah. Now, my, my mother died when she was 56, so I've outlived my mother by, you know, 11, 12 years already. Right. My dad died at age 87, but he had three bouts of cancer along the way. And so I have a feeling somewhere along the line there that um, I may not reach 87. Wow. So there's no way in hell I was going to reach 108. Right. And, and so, the longest the longest standing Jesperson that I know of that lived was 93 years old. Okay. And that now was my great uncle Tony. Right. Your mom died of cancer too, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it runs in your yeah. family. Yeah. It's uh, my. I have a niece. I have a niece that was 28 years old and had cancer, and she beat it. Right. She's now in her fifties, and but she's still, you know, she's she's doing okay now. But she she was on her deathbed there at twenty eight years old. Remaining. Wow. Okay, I'll call you right back. Yeah. Okay. You need right. to begin I'm speaking over here now. Doing the hand gestures. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Welcome back. Back Keith. again. Yes. Okay. So so you know we you know we stepped from you know the the Bennett case and we moved forward. Now I I murdered four more people. Right. Now, there's part of me that didn't want to be a, a killer out there doing it. And I, I, I argue with myself a lot about why I was doing this. You know, okay. I thought this is crazy that I was, right. uh, you know, going down this road. And uh, I wanted to get out. I wanted to get away from, I figured that trucking was the, one of the motives, one of the, um, right. uh, you know, they, they, they always say that there's a tool to a murderer. Right. You know, you're, you have your house, you have your car, you have a, in my case, it was a truck where I had a sleeper where I was out of, you know, nobody could see inside the sleeper. It was like a, a dark hole where I could commit murder. Right. And get away with it. And then under the cover of darkness, get rid of the bodies and then. I didn't have to worry about, like today, nowadays, there's cameras everywhere. 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 So, okay. you know, you, you'd be... Right. So, in April, April of 1994, uh-huh. I had quit trucking. I moved in with a friend of mine named Jerome Day, Jerry Day, and we were, he was living in Newburgh, Oregon. And I right. know you know where that is. I do. And he, he lived in an apartment behind the, uh, the Hoover House in Newburgh. Okay. And I try to get jobs around the area running heavy equipment. And if you're not in the, if you're not running heavy equipment all the time, you kind of get out of the, the sink of things. Right. So you're, you're kind of like, I, I was, I was, I was, I had the, uh, the uh, qualifications. I just needed to rehearse my, what my job was and, and get back into the swing of things. And right. a lot of these companies wanted someone right away that was in the swing right away. And, and so I bounced around between two or three different jobs, and it just didn't work out. Right. But while I was there, 
while I was there, I was going through the want ads in the Oregonian newspaper every day, and I started thinking about those two people that were in prison, because when I read the article on, on the 23rd of January of 1990, how they, you know, they found the body, and then, then I found later that they were arrested and wanted to confess. And right. This was part of the Oregonian newspaper thing, and here I was reading this, and I was thinking, what if I could free those two without turning myself in? You know, right. what if? I mean, I thought, you know, this is a bad... I was thinking that, you know, they just made a mistake, you know, and right. that the police just made a mistake. I had no idea that they, they purposely framed them. I had no idea of this happening. I just thought that I should inject the idea that they had the wrong people and maybe they'll push the investigation somewhere in another direction. And I knew I was free and clear. They weren't going to come after me, but... I just thought I could push that little narrative along and maybe they'd investigate this and make this thing where they start looking into it. Right. So I wrote out a letter to the Washington County Courthouse. Why Washington County? Well, I was living in Washington County because that's where Newburgh is. Right. And back back then, they have phone books, right? Yeah, I know. Now, <laughs> they don't have phone books now? Yeah. But back then, we have phone books and yellow pages, and when I looked in there for the courthouse, is the Washington County Courthouse address, and I never thought about it being that, that it was Multnomah County that I was living in, in Portland. Right. I just thought, I just looked on there for the courthouse. I wrote a letter to the courthouse, and they, they turned around and they sent that on to Multnomah County, and then, of course, it fell on deaf ears when it landed on Jim McIntyre's desk the prosecutor and they had they had framed these people so they weren't interested in reopening the case right you know they they knew they they keep claiming that they have the right people in prison that everybody else is liars and so forth so i got i didn't see anything in the news that's why when i was ready to pick up the newspaper there was no mention of a, a reopen of the case or anything like that right so i wrote a letter to the oregonian newspaper right and it landed on Phil Stanford, death the reporter, and in that letter I named the other five murders, the other all five murders, which would be the Bennett murder being one, and the other four, and I, and I exaggerated a lot in what I said in there. I mentioned a lot of different stupid things, and which now in prison would make me look bad, but out there I wanted the public to be up in arms. I wanted them to push the issue. Right. I wanted them to think there's some heinous character out there doing this and I wanted them to push the issue and so it, it went on Phil Sanford's desk and uh, that's how I got to be known as a happy face killer because that letter had a smiley face on it right and they uh, and, and that's what they they ran with it they thought you know because it has a smiley face they called me the second you know the happy face killer well I didn't stick around for the editorials Right. I, right. I, I ran out of out of money and I had to go back to work. So I went to hire it on with systems transportation of uh, Spokane. And then I was running up and down across the United States. So I didn't follow what was being said in Oregon about the the happy face letter, te- you know, the, the, the editorials. Right. And then uh, from what I understood from the L.A. Times stories that some woman in Bend, Oregon, claimed her husband wrote the letter. 
and the Multnomah County uh, District Attorney's Office sent uh, Detectives Ingram and, and Corson over to investigate and found that the woman was very much like Laverne, wanting to use the legal system to get rid of, of her husband. Wow. They, yeah, that was that was how it played out, and so they just ignored it. From what I understood is that uh, Phil Stanford was told by his his bosses of the Oregonians to drop the editorials because Multnomah County was pressuring them to drop it. Right. So he he ended up getting fired because of the the Happy Face editorials. And he ended up working for like the Willamette well, Week or something like that. He had to get he had to get another job because right. he did he he felt it, it, that the, the the killer was real, right? And that uh, that Laverne and John didn't didn't do this, right? So yeah, but then all this was going on, and I was still driving up and down the highway. I didn't know that they went to Bend, Oregon. I didn't know, but in November of 1994, I'm in Houston, Texas. I I dropped a set of frame rails off at Peterbilt in Denton, and several of us system drivers went down to Houston, Texas to pick up three pieces of pipe, 50 feet long, to haul to Tacoma. And uh, I got down there. I was in a truck stop down in Houston in 1994 in November, and I read this True Detective magazine, and there's an article in the magazine called, Does Oregon Have Another Zodiac Killer? by the writer Frank Hughes. Right. And I just caught my attention, so I picked up the magazine. I went straight to the page. And I opened it up. And there was my letter. Right. Right. That's how I. That's how I learned that I was a happy taste killer. In November of '94, I read a True Detective magazine. Wow. And the story does Oregon have another right. you know, Zodiac killer by Frank Hughes? I, I read that. I was like, my God. But there's a lot of mistakes in the article. They right. mentioned there's a certain thing I don't remember exactly what the mistakes were, but. I wrote a, a letter to the editor of New York and told them of my of the mistakes in the story and told them of number six, my number six murder in Florida that happened in 94. And I called it my number 56 murder in the letter, even though it wasn't. It was, I was exaggerated again. And that letter has never been out in the open. Florida's holding it, I believe in case they want to prosecute me, but they wanted to bring that out at another time. But it's never made public. But I also know that they have it because when I was arrested in 95, all of a sudden I, I was, I, they had me down for a Florida murder. Right. So they knew that, you know, that, that letter was mine, whatever. So that's, that's kind of how, how that all played out. Wow. And, Yeah. And so that's what, you know, I get the the, the happy face killer thing from the, the, the one letter I sent to the Oregonian. Right. In the 1994. So, so and there then is... I, then in 1995, I killed two women. That one was Anderson Sabree, the one was, was uh, Julianne Winningham. Right. And that's, and the Julianne Winningham murder is why I was caught. Right. Because of, uh, now, everyone, everyone that she told... Her friends, they all told them that my name was Chris. Oh. They were looking for Chris until they found my name, Keith Jesperson, on a receipt, uh, on the, a bill of sale right, to for a the car. car. Yeah. And that's how they knew where to look for me. Now, when I was there in, in early you know, early March of 95, I picked up a load of lumber headed to Pennsylvania. And uh, that's when it all got kind of weird, you know, when, when, when they're, they're after you. 
there are uh, when you're when you're a killer. There's a little explanation I have to come up with here. Um, the, when you're a killer, you kind of have a sixth sense, right? You know, sort of. You know, we 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 look for inconsistencies in our life, right? Odd things that stand out. We realize things are not normal. If I don't understand it, usually what I do, I just slow everything down and make the problem expose itself. Right. Because I'm, I'm you know, you have, you, you, you run through life and everything's normal. Right. I run through when I, as a murderer, I'm looking over my my back all the time, wondering what's what isn't normal. Right. And so when I I had this load, I went to Pennsylvania and I dropped off the lumber load and I. I was given a load to go to uh, Washington, Pennsylvania, to pick up a load of stainless steel to, to haul to a mine, a copper mine, north of Demings, New Mexico. And this is a, my last trucking run. This is the last one I was on before my arrest. Okay. Okay, so when I got to the steel mill, what yeah. was weird about this was I got to the steel mill, there was like three other systems drivers, other company drivers there, Mm-hmm. But when I walked up to their cab, they wouldn't talk to me. Oh. They wouldn't even open their door to talk to me. They, they were, like, shunning me. Right. And normally, us truck drivers, we'd talk to each other. We'd tell trucker stories and all that kind of thing, and we'd all kind of, like, stand around and, and, and mingle and talk about the company and blah, 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 and on and on and we go. I walked up to them, and they were like, shut the door, lock the door, don't get away from me kind of thing. So I think what happened was, they were on to me, and they, they, their dispatch probably told them to not to be in contact with me, just leave me alone, and something's up kind of thing. Right. It, it's something that's odd, right? Right. It's out of the ordinary. So there are things that happened on that trip that really were, were standing out. Wow. Okay. Um, when I talked to dispatch, he had no idea where to send me after I got unloaded in Deming's. Right. And normally they have a load already set up for me to get, right? So right. when I get unloaded, I head in a certain direction to go get it. Well, he's never had, he, he, I was under that load for a week. Wow. And he had no idea where to send me. Every time I called him, where am I going after this? He didn't know. Wow. Now, when I, when I, <laughs> yeah. So when I got down, it, I got to uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. And I pulled into the Union Cal 76 truck stop, and on the 17th of March, now do I know this, it's my daughter's birthday. Oh, wow. And I was a member, I was a member of the Jimmy Dolan Dance Club there, just kind of west of the truck stop there at the Union Cal 76 in, in Little Rock. And I was over there at the dance club. I was there that night, and then I went out to the phone booth out in the parking lot. I called my daughter, and I, I was talking to Carrie. And I wished her a happy birthday, and I asked her if she got the money. I sent her, I sent her a $100 bill. And, and uh, she asked me when I was going to see you again, Dad. And, and I said, when I get home, I'll be there. And that was 28 years ago. Wow. Roughly. And I haven't seen her since, right? So the last time I talked to her was, you know, 28 years ago. Wow. And so, you know, I headed down. When I got to Texarkana, I pulled into the truck stop there. I walked across the street to the, the, the Taco Bell. Right. I grabbed myself some something to eat the Taco Bell, went over and got some chocolate milk from the convenience store. And there were some cops in the Taco Bell. And they looked at me. Now, I was dressed in a, in a, in a black leather jacket. 
Mm -hmm. I had a black blue jeans. My jeans were black, and I had black boots on. And so, and of course, being six foot six, they're like, oh my God, look at that guy. He must be an evil man. Right. So I walked out into the parking lot of the old uh, empty Kmart parking lot, and I was eating my meal. I was sitting on a on a log out there. And these cops came out of there, and they were yelling at me to come and talk to them. And I ignored them. I walked away from them. I walked across the parking lot. I walked around them. I wouldn't ever come over and talk to them because they kept yelling for me to go talk to them. And I walked across the street, got on the payphone, didn't make a number, but looked over at them to see that they were watching me on the payphone. And then I kind of pointed my finger at them like a gun and, and cocked my thumb. <laughs> Oh, well, there you go. Just to piss them off, right? Then I turned around, walked into the truck stop, and ran into my truck and, and hit in my truck. And, and within minutes, there were like two or three cop cars cruising through the truck stop. Wow. Looking for the, the tall man in black, you know, Johnny Cash. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Uh, that was kind of weird. And then that next morning, uh, I gave a girl a ride to DeKalb, Texas because she needed a ride from the truck stop. And, and DeKalb, Texas is the same town where Dan, the blockers live, you know, Dan Blocker, Haas of, of Bonanza. Oh, okay. That's where, that's where he was, big their Hoss. family was raised. <laughs> yeah, big Haas, big Haas, yeah. So I gave her a ride, and this was kind of weird. I, I pulled the truck in, I separated the truck from the trailer. I drove her to her mobile home. She was married to a guy that was 30 years older than her. I pulled up in front of the house there, and she calls her daughter. Her daughter comes over, jumps in the truck, and she yells at me to move, to drive off and leave. And I was like, this, this is kidnapping, you know? Right. I was like, this is crazy. I'm not going to leave with her in the truck and stuff. So I drove, the, I drove up to the stop sign. I told them both to get the hell out. Wow. And she said, well, I'll be right back. I'll pull up the truck. I'm going to show you my cats, right? So she raises mountain lions. Oh. Literally. She had cages of mountain lions, and she came up with a car, and she got me, and, I, and drove me out to her where she raises these mountain lions, and we fed the mountain lions chickens, so they, they were eating that. And then she drove me around the country to show me different things, just, just to be nice. And I came back, and I got in the truck, and I headed across Texas. I got over to El Paso, Texas. And I called them from the Unicel 76 truck stop there in El Paso, and I talked to my boss. And this is another thing that really kind of caught me off guard, right? Now, he said that I, you know, because I needed my new bingo slips for my, my permit to go across the country, I didn't, I, I hadn't got them yet. It was March, and I still hadn't got my, I hadn't got back to the company to get my new, my new tags for the truck. Mm. So I'd have to get a, uh, uh, a permit to run across New Mexico. Okay. And I told him, he said, well, you need to go to New Mexico Port of Entry and uh, you need to uh, get a permit. And I said to my boss on the phone, I told him, I said, you know, uh, you know, I know how to skirt the, the scale here, the Port of Entry. I don't have to cross it. You know, I, I can get around it without having to pay a permit. I already know how to do that. I know the different routes of where to do it. And, and he said, oh, no, no, just pay for the permit, which is another tell. Right. Right. He's telling me so, that he wants me to spend money that uh -huh. he could have got away without having to spend money. But he right, wants me right, to spend right. money, and, I, and he wants me to go across the port of entry. So I go across the port of entry, and I pay for the. And they give me enough money, but they don't give me my full draw. They give me just enough for the for the ticket, okay. for the for the for the license. 
and I get to the port entry, I cross the scale, and I, and I pull off the side, and I walk in with my paperwork, and I pay for the permit. And as I was leaving, the port entry waymaster asked me my name. Okay. Have you ever had your name been asked at a, at a port entry? Not even once. Not, Not even, even once. once. You know no. why? Because they don't want to know who you are, because you made a permit, you're, you're, you're up to date. But these guys wanted to know what my name was. And I told them, and I looked at them, they were talking to each other, and I was like, what the hell is that all about, right? Because no one ever asked me my name. That's a tell. So you start thinking about stuff like this. Okay, so my boss doesn't know where I'm going. You know, these other people wouldn't talk to me. Every other system driver ever ran up to, once they found out who I was, they just ignored me. Wow. You know, so I get the port entry. Now, my boss didn't want me to... Uh, to go around the scales, which was really weird, you know, because I could have. I could have just gone around it, and everything would have been just fine that way, right? And then, as I was driving, I, I noticed things, okay? Uh, I notice things when I'm driving. I always look around. I, I see things, and then I get past Las Cruces, and I climb the hill past a little truck stop. I look over to the fairgrounds. Nothing's happening at the fairgrounds. I get up to the uh, the road going up to the mine, and I get on the road, and I hear some clatter. The other truck stop, the other truck drivers are telling me about two cop cars were parked next to the mine, you know, within a couple miles of the mine, and they were just parked there, two unmarked cop cars. Okay. Now, when I get to the mine, I get up there, and I bring my paperwork in, and the, uh, uh, the guy behind the... the the guard shack there comes out. He says, all right, he gets a little pickup, and I follow the pickup to where I get unloaded. They they, they pull a, 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 a guy with a big forklift off of what he was doing. He comes over, and he takes a, the product off my trailer. Within 20 minutes, which is a rarity, it doesn't ever happen, you go into a place, and they just drop what they're doing, and they unload me. Yeah, because unloaders and loaders both are traditionally, not always, but... 99% of the time, they're pretty freaking lazy. It's like, eh, yeah. get them wait forever. They get around you when they want to get around to it. Yep. This guy, within 20 minutes, they had this stuff off my trailer. I threw the tarp. It was windy, so I couldn't roll the tarps up. I just threw everything up on on the end of the trailer and threw a couple straps on it. I figured the next morning I would go ahead and, when the wind wasn't blowing, I'd roll the tarps up and put them up the way they should be. Now... <laughs> I, when they want me to call after I got unloaded. Well, everything was just crazy. So I pulled up to a convenience store. You know, I come out of the out of, out of the mine. I pulled to a convenience store. I go in, have myself a couple drinks of, of iced tea, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about the cops sitting there and I'm thinking about why they asked me my name and and I don't understand what's going on. It's just out of the ordinary. So what do I do? I slow down. I don't want, I make the day go, but, you know, there's no reason. He doesn't know where I'm going, so why push it? Right. So I just slow down. I go in, I, I, I have a couple of drinks. I go out in the truck. I lay down for an hour. Because I, I, I lay down and I say, well, let's slow this down. Let's, let's see how, you know, another hour would be like, okay, I'll get unloaded in an hour and a half. That's normal. So I come back out and I call the boss up. I said, all right, uh, I'm unloaded. What do you want me to do? Well, he says, go down to Demings and call me from Demings, you know, and it's a truck stop. Well, okay then, right? So what do I do? I go back on the truck and lay down for another hour. Mm -hmm. 
Then I finally get her on the road, and I start heading south. Now, all the time I'm hearing the clatter on the radio about these two cop cars sitting there south, you know, south of the mine, parked there, just sitting there. Okay. And so when I get back on the road and I start driving south towards Demings, I get past those two cop cars. I wasn't past them half a mile, and these two cop cars pull in behind me. And the other, the other truckers are telling me this, right? I'm hearing them on the radio. Those, those, those cops are now on the move, right? And yeah. so they're on the move. Now they're on behind me. When, before I get to Interstate 10, they pass me. One comes up right alongside of me, and the guy looks right up at me, and I look down at him, and he just pauses there. Then he just races off, right? It's a two-lane two lane roadway. So he takes off. I get to the truck stop. I walk in. I get a shower. I have a meal. Then I call my boss. By that time, it's close to 4, 4.30 in the afternoon. And when I talk to him, he says, well, i got nothing going on today. Uh, call me in the morning. I said, where do you want me to go? He didn't know. Wow. So something was up, right? All these little things kind of like play into your head while you're sitting there. Right. So now later that night, I take a walk from the truck stop to downtown Demings. I go to the McDonald's there. And as I'm walking down to the to McDonald's, there's a red Bronco truck following me. I know mm-hmm. he, it, it, this, is, this could be just an, a kid cruising up and down the avenue in the small town USA, right? Right. But I go to McDonald's, I turn around, I walk back to the truck stop, and I see the red Bronco again. Okay. I'm like, okay, okay, this this, this could be weird, right? Mm-hmm. I get back to the truck, I lay down, go to sleep, wake up in the morning, I roll the tarps up, throw them on my trailer, strap those things down, my truck's a little dirty. I look over at the truck wash, and there's that red Bronco. Okay. I walked over to the red, I walked over to the truck stop. They wouldn't wash my truck. Wow. They wouldn't allow. They said we're broke down. We're broke down, right? I go into the the, the the truck stop and I'm saying, well, I need to go take a shower before I take off anywhere. They wouldn't let me have a shower. Wow. Everything's broke down, right? To me, everything's broke down to me. I go back. I, I call the boss. He says, this is this is where it really gets kind of kind of weird, right? I call the boss up, and he says, I need you to go to the fairgrounds at Las Cruces at noon and talk to so-and-so. And there's a name that just just jumped out at me. Reading True Detective magazines, you read all kinds of detective names. And this name popped out, and I said, well, that name, that's a detective out of Las Cruces. And, and they argued with me that it wasn't, right? Which is a tell. Why would you argue with me? What, what does it matter? He's there to get me a load. That's all I'm caring about because I have nothing to do with Las Cruces. I didn't kill anybody there. Right. So I'm not worried about Las Cruces. I'm thinking, what the hell? Why is this cop? And he, they argued over the name of the cop because I read it in some True Detective Magazine article that this cop was involved in the case. Okay. And so they made a big deal about me bringing his name up. You know, why would he care that I, I knew this name? But there was a pause on the phone. Right. Like, and there's another, you know, so I take off from, I leave that truck stop and head east, back, go back towards Las Cruces. The moment I leave the truck stop, over the CB radio, the, the truck wash announces that they're open for business now. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. And I'm like, maybe I should turn around and go back and wash the truck. <laughs> right. But I don't. I just go around. I go to the small truck stop just just east of the of the, of the the uh, fairgrounds, and I park. When I'm parked there, I look up across the road, and I see a cop parked on the on-ramp up there. And he's not a, he's not a state patrol. He's a sheriff car right. parked there. And I, I have a set of binoculars, always carry a set of binoculars in my truck, and I'm, I'm checking out everything, and things just don't seem right, right? You get that, you get that feeling that something's not right. Right. And so when noon comes around, I drive over to the front entrance of the fairgrounds. I'm parked there, and I wasn't there two minutes, and the red Bronco pulls in behind me. Okay. Yeah. So... That's kind of crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, when he steps out, when the man steps out from the Red Bronco, I know he's a cop. You know why I know he's got Either that or he's a good carpenter. Because <laughs> he's walking bow-legged? <laughs> yeah, no, he's not bow-legged. He's oh. walking with his arms out like he's a gunslinger, right? Oh, gotcha. carpenters have these belts on with all the tools. Right. And they walk around with these damn gunslinger arms, and so do the cops. They have the gun underneath their underneath their arm or on their, they run one with a gun belt. Right. So he's walking towards me and he says, uh, I'm going to pull in here. Can you follow me? And I said, yeah, okay, I can follow you. And so I fall, I drive behind him into a, an area where I can't pull around. I can't, I can't, I can't escape. Right. And he parks and I get out and I, I get in behind him. I walk behind him in this building. And as I walk behind this quantitative, I walked back there, and there's eight cops, and they had their guns pointed at me. Wow. And they said, you're wanted for questioning in an ongoing murder investigation, right? Okay. And the only thing I could think of is, which one? <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm either going like... I'm Did you ask figure, them the that, hell? too? No, right, I no, 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 no. <laughs> I would have been, been like this. Uh, can you be more specific? Is when they asked me this, when they said, I'm wanted in an ongoing investigation, I said... I'm thinking to myself, which one are they after? Wow. I have no idea. I didn't have no idea it was a Julie Wayneham case. I figured it might have been one of the other ones. You know, maybe they're caught on to this up like. So they, they handcuffed me. They put me in the car. And they asked me if I had ever been arrested before. And I, I run them down the Don Slagle case because I figured they knew. Okay. I didn't want to come off as being a liar. I, I came off as, I thought they knew. So for six hours, I denied guilt in the Wayneham case. Right. They took blood and hair, and they gave me... Remaining. I'll call you right back. Okay. All right. Right. what did you think of those calls? Dude, it, you know, because this is really interesting, because it was during the second call when we started going into um, how he was arrested. You know, they first started questioning him about Winningham's murder. Right, right, right. right. And about how they cornered him in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and everything. But I thought it was interesting... You know, and he kind of made a point to say is like, you know, you don't understand unless you've done it. But when you kill people for a living, basically, you learn to pay attention to your surroundings so you know when things are off. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, and it, like the way he was talking, it's like, you know, he's kind of got a point, you know, that you kind of know when things are not quite right. Right. You like know? One of these things is not like. Yeah. And he was like, you know. That there were so many signs when he's looking back on it, going, you know what? I kind of knew. 
<laughs> so, but I thought it was very interesting. Cool, cool. All right. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. This show's copyrighted 2023 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights reserved, and we will see you guys later on to finish up calls three and four from this weekend. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.